Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 28 in our 2014 series. And today's date is Friday the 25th of July. And Leon, what's on the menu this week? Well, first of all, we're going to start having a chat with Peter Hart. He is the CEO of Kronos, which is a performance management company, and he's going to be talking to us all about how that works. And uh, then we're going to have a chat with RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson. Pretty good. And uh, yeah, Peter Hart's very interesting in uh, you know how you can improve productivity and um, help workers and also help management. Well, let's listen to Peter Hart. Peter Hart, uh, Kronos is all about recording employee time transactions. Uh, what are companies doing to enable workers to manage and track their hours? So, Leon, it's a very interesting point. If you look at time and employees in general, uh, companies have realised over the last few years, and in particular the last 24 months, uh, that people are their greatest asset. Managing time has got a direct correlation to uh, to productivity, which has been on the Australian landscape, the business landscape, for a couple of years. If we look at um, originally the the microprocessor in 1977 was released and then Kronos put out the first electronic time clock and the whole idea of that was really just capturing the time when people attended a business or when they left the business and then since then it's really exploded onto okay companies now want to find or make sure that they've got the, the right people at the right place at the right time. Media now with mobile uh, devices people have then realized now that rostering, employee tracking and instant engagement with the workforce is essential for them to be happy and motivated. So mobile devices are now the big trend. What sort of mobile devices are we talking about here? So we're looking at anything um, that's Android, uh, iPads, any uh, phones that you have. And, and where the power of that now lies is that an employee or an employer may have certain open shifts. It could be in a manufacturing environment. It could be a retail environment or a healthcare, which is a pretty key industry that's growing at the moment. And when somebody doesn't turn up, for example, for a, a shift, it could be a, a midwife in a hospital. It could be a forklift driver in a transportation business. They now need to find and replace those people pretty quickly. Beforehand, it was a very manual a time-consuming exercise going through pieces of paper trying to phone people but right now with mobility they can just send shifts down to employees straight away on any mobile device anywhere they may be. You mentioned healthcare before I mean are they big source of uh, revenue for your company? So Leon that's a good question because typically they were laggards in the industry and if you look at the healthcare model whether it be what's come out with the federal government and what's happening with, with cuts in spending or whether it be private hospitals where there's a lot of private equity wrapped up in the moment. The biggest, largest controllable cost in healthcare is people, yet we have, uh, we've done a poor job of really managing those assets to the point where uh, we just did a paper a year or so ago entitled The Hidden Workforce and a lot of that was focused on mothers coming back into the workforce in the healthcare industry. What's really exciting and interesting now, whether it be aged care or community care or indeed hospitals, more and more leaders of those businesses are looking to make sure that they've got correct rosters, especially around the activity-based costing measurements that are coming in from the government, and mobility helps them do that. So you would have, you'd be having a lot of healthcare providers coming over? 
to you, wouldn't you? In fact, we have. Uh, most recently, uh, the number one and number two private hospital group in Australia, uh, Ramsey and HealthScope, have uh, both uh, partnered with Kronos. And the idea of that is putting in full rostering capabilities, which then, again, allows them to have instant engagement with employees, with the nurse unit managers, and also for the time and attendance perspective, it allows nurses uh, for he and she to be able to uh, openly request or even swap shifts. Tell us about your cloud-based workforce management tool. Sure. So I've got 11,000 uh, adopters already on the cloud. It's the, uh, it's the most popular and fastest growing part of Kronos at the moment. And that's essential because um, just just released our figures that we're a billion dollar company which we're obviously very proud of but when we analyze that more what this now allows is mid-market sized companies to have the ability to be able to manage their workforce which is key to them to thrive and survive using the cloud because they can just like any software as a service they can use it um at will and at an inexpensive price for the size of their company so it's very cost effective cloud is cost effective incredibly cost effective it means that they don't need it resources they don't have to be reliant on anybody they can make sure that uh, the same capabilities of a, of a large multinational like a Woolworths or, or a coles or a coca-cola companies like that they can now get access to the the, the types of features uh, again if you're a small market of, of say 200 employees what about wearable products like uh, uh, fuel bands and fitbits and jawbone like devices so the interesting uh, part about that is you migrate even more from the mobile phone. We are seeing more and more of these trends on, on armbands. We're looking obviously at Facebook and Twitter. We're looking at ways of, of uh, you know, again, how employers can communicate with their employees. These types of devices uh, are really extending the reach of mobility. Um, these types of devices, for example, can be used out in, in mines or rural places or, or in, in a services-based industry really to track where people are, what they are doing, and it, it helps a lot with compliance. Does a, a client using or seeking to use that sort of technology need to do a bit of education because if you put an armband on a plumber, so he might sort of think that they're treating him like a convict. That's an interesting question. That comes down with uh, with culture and, and change management. I think those wearable um, devices are exactly placed in, in certain industries, if you like, where... Um, where the culture of the company is, and where it's being explained is that, that those bands are really to uh, help them do their job. So let me give an example of that. The aged care or community care business is, a, is an excellent example as the governments are, if you like, pushing out those services to, to uh, providers like non-for-profit providers or for-profit providers. One of the key compliance that they have is that they have to prove that they've administered some sort of medicine uh, to somebody in a home. And they have to obviously report back that's, that's important important if you're a dementia patient for example that can actually be um, a difficult thing to prove and those types of bands or indeed a mobile device which has got what we call geofencing and, and, and can uh, detect exactly where you are then allows that company to go back to the government or to the insurance company and let them know that they have been at that particular site so it's really in the change management and the, and the culture which is is driven by the company and you could record a, an employee's um, action 
given given a medication or I've been to this person. Indeed, what you can do is we call it uh, activities or, or task management. So from the moment that you've actually uh, entered a premise or you're you're doing a particular task, uh, you start the task and then you end the task and it records those details. Tell us about, I mean, there's been a lot of work at Cabrini Hospital. Um, can you tell us about that? Sure. So, yeah, the interesting thing about niche hospitals, this would be like the St. Vincent's or the Cabrini's. Cabrini's looked at their workforce and, and two things uh, or a few things that were going through their mind first of all it's uh it costs a lot of money to bring nurses into the business train them and you don't want them to leave uh, a lot of the reasons why uh, nurses left the business is they were either uh, having uh, children so they were on maternity leave paternity leave or they were looking after uh, their parents and what we found was in that healthcare industry that, that when they wanted to come back in there wasn't enough flexibility for them to be able to come in so cabrini looked at that kind of uh, a problem and they thought Okay, we're going to put a rostering system in, and when we roster, we're going to now be able to offer our staff, if you like, more shift availability rather than what a lot of people do, which is go out to agency, uh, increase their costs, and, and if you can't, lower the service levels between the, um, the nurse and the employee. Once they put a time and attendance and scheduling system in, the savings that, uh, that they are received were astronomical. The business case paid for itself within months, um, they get a better level of care and they've managed to reduce their costs. So obviously, I mean, healthcare is one sector which is big. Are there any other sectors that we should be looking at? Sure. So I thought it was very interesting that we saw manufacturing uh, was more and more of it was being pushed uh, overseas. And you can look at even the car factories that have uh, left and, and got overseas. If I look to America right now, manufacturing is now one of the largest growing uh, markets again. Yet years ago, they were pushing uh, most of their manufacturing off into Mexico and other countries like that. And what that did then is just spur innovation. In the manufacturing industry, for example, what time, what, uh, if you like, workforce management can do is going to allow those manufacturers to get a real understanding of their costs which they haven't had in the past. The other area is really retail. Retail is all about service. And we've got the online retail boom, as you know. But it's all about that customer experience and each retailer is trying to differentiate themselves now on making sure that not only have value, but they also have a, a good customer engagement. And the best way to do that is, again, making sure you've got the right skilled resource when the customer's coming in. And that's where workforce management and rostering and scheduling can allow that to happen. So where do you see the future with uh, with these with these sorts of tools? I think it's time now for governments, actually state governments, to uh, start looking at these tools. If we look at all the cuts that go on, whether it be in uh, state government, whether it be in federal government, whether it be even in local councils, again, they've got uh, they're the biggest employer in Australia, yet managing their costs, um, they're not as advanced as perhaps they can be. So I think emergency services, I think even the teachers, a lot of those uh, big entities that employ lots of people, in the governments in Australia and New Zealand will be um, a perfect fit for workforce management. Peter Hart, thank you very much. Thank you very much. When you consider they started out in, uh, with time clocks and factories and uh, now they've embraced technology, Cronus is really a very interesting they've company. Co they've come a very, very long way. Now yeah. they're bringing things like wearable devices. And they'll keep on going. Yeah, they're really into, uh, into the cloud and things like that. So now the economist, Sinclair Davidson. That's right. And he is going to be talking to us all about the Senate rejecting the repeal of the mining tax, in yeah. effect. And, and keeping all the payments. And keeping all the payments. Let's have a chat to Sinclair. Sinclair Davidson, the Senate has refused to get rid of the mining tax and is still keeping on with the government spending. What implications does that have for government finances? 
Well, ironically, it's, it's, it's not quite as bad as it seems because if, if you recall, the uh, previous government introduced the mining tax and then at the same time introduced very generous spending against the mining tax. And as it turns out, the mining tax hasn't raised anywhere near the revenue anybody ever thought it would. So we're not actually really that worse off because we don't have the revenue. We had the spending and we've still not got the revenue and we've still got the spending. So in, in some sort of mega sense, overall arching sense we're not any worse off to the extent that the current government had sort of already planned on cutting expenditure and we'll sort of talk about what that expenditure really is in a moment but to the extent that the government had planned cutting that expenditure and re- and repealing the mining tax at the same time uh, Mr. Hockey's budget is looking worse off than it actually is but in in, in the grand scheme of things uh, we're not actually that worse off. Tell us about the government's spending issues. Well the some of the issues which the which the government is calling spending is actually uh, a tax cuts. So for example the instant depreciation rights off which the government wishes to repeal and the tax carry loss backwards, um, which which the government wants to repeal, those are actually repealing tax cuts, which the government is calling spending. Now, to the extent that, of course, tax cuts um, result in the government foregoing revenue, I suppose they, they like spending, but they're not actually spending, which is why we saw Senators Day and Lionhelm, for example, voting against the, uh, uh, the so-called spending cuts because they said these are really tax increases and both of them have promised not to vote for a tax increase. So that's what's going on there. The other thing is to, to be quite clear is that it was the Senate actually repealed the mining tax but didn't repeal the spending. So they actually separated out the, the two issues which the federal government, the executive in the House of Representatives said, no, 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 it all had to be one big package. So the reason why the mining tax itself is still on the books is because Mr. Abbott uh, didn't accept the amendments in the Senate. And uh, that's been sent back to the House of Reps and uh, that's unlikely to accept what the Senate says. Yes, yes, very much so. I think um, there, there's now a five-week break, uh, the, the winter break. Uh, our politicians don't work too hard in Canberra, so they've got a, a five-week break. But uh, apparently when they come back from the break, they're going to try and repeal the mining tax again. Now, there is one thing that people aren't talking about in, in, in the mining tax, and that is, of course, the rebate of state royalties. Because what happens under the system is that the mining companies pay state royalties for extracting the minerals out of the ground while actually coal and iron ore and when they pay the mining tax that actually gets uh, it's a deduction so more or less what is happening is that there's this massive unfunded liability of state li- of state royalties that is actually accumulating which the commonwealth at some point will have to either extinguish or pay out or pay back or do something about so the the cost of the mining tax isn't just that it hasn't raised any revenue and we've got all the spending it's also the unfunded state royalties that are accumulating that is a liability to the Commonwealth government. Now, this was a design flaw when they introduced the the mining tax, and uh, the Gillard government couldn't fix it. And of course, the opposition, the then opposition, the now Abbott government, had no interest in fixing it because they were simply going to repeal it. So there is a bit of a problem there. And uh, I would have thought at some point the the federal government will have to bite the bullet and realize that there's this massive unfunded liability, or actually just repeal the the, the tax itself and keep some of the so-called spending. 
how big are these unfunded liabilities? Um, it's hard to say at the minute. The tax itself has raised, I think, about $130 million, and the royalty payments are more or less whatever the Queensland and Western Australian government have raised in royalties over the last couple of years. Now, I don't have those figures at the, at the uh, by my fingertips, but what we do also know is that as soon as the Commonwealth made this open-ended promise to refund the, the state royalties, is that the Western Australian government and the Queensland governments jacked up their royalties more or less to what they expected was the full value of the mining tax. So what we have in the moment now is probably royalties that are a bit higher than what they should be which the state governments are taking the money the mining companies are paying the money knowing that they're likely to get it back at some point in the future so we actually have this incredible inefficiency or all, all, all the arguments that we heard why we should have a more efficient uh, mining royalty mining tax argument got totally thrown out the window we've actually gone backwards in this area since the mining tax was introduced which is probably why it should be repealed because that will put pressure back onto the state governments to reduce their royalties, which are probably a bit high at the moment. But uh, the Senate has indicated which way it's travelling, and uh, they're unlikely to repeal the mining tax because of all the other benefits uh, that the Gillard government had attached to it. Yes, they they certainly do not want to repeal the benefits, but they have they have indicated a willingness to repeal the tax by itself, and I think that is probably where the Abbott government is going to have to end up being. That the tax itself gets repealed, but some of the other associated tax cuts and spending actually continues on. Because bear in mind, some of these things are are, are very similar to when we saw the carbon tax being repealed. Is that the Senate refused to repeal, for example, the increase in the tax-free threshold because they said that would be a a, a tax increase. So for, for all the, the so-called popularism that we're seeing in the Senate, there, there's actually some principle coming out that the Senate is refusing to vote for tax increases. So where does that leave the budget if uh, those attached benefits remain in place? To the extent that the, the hockey budget is relying on increases in taxation, that leaves it in trouble. Um, uh, similarly, to the extent that... Uh, uh, spending increases. That is the uh, Mr. Hockey's budget is in problem. Now, if, if we just look even before the Senate got involved, if, if we have a look at, at, at Hockey's budget, he didn't cut much spending at all. In actual fact, what he did was he reprioritized spending away from sort of welfare areas into um, infrastructure spending areas, for example. That's where the big changes were. And a lot of those infrastructure spending is is discretionary. That can be delayed, and I think it's going to have to be delayed. And a, a lot of the spending that takes place in government departments that doesn't rely on parliamentary approval is going to have to be delayed as well. And and we've already seen Mr. Hockey making those threats that they're going to have to start cutting back spending. Now, to be perfectly blunt, this is why he was elected. The Abbott government came to power promising to cut spending and bring the budget back into surplus. We didn't see any of those promises manifest themselves in the budget. So to that extent, I, I have a less sympathy for the government than I normally would have um, because I don't really think that they're trying hard enough to bring the budget back into, in, in, into surplus. So you can't see the budget going into surplus in a few years' time? Uh, not on current trends, no. As a matter of fact, um, I think the, 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 the hockey budget is 
is pursuing the same strategy as Mr. Swan's budgets, hoping that at some point in the future economic growth will drive the budget into surplus. Now, um, we saw Swan try this for a few years. It failed dismally. I can't really see why it's going to succeed under Mr. Hockey. We actually need to make some tough spending decisions and cut spending. We can't just hope that somehow by magic the economy will grow revenue into a budget surplus. But if they were unwilling to make those spending cuts in their first term, what's the likelihood of them doing it subsequently as we get closer to an election? Well, we, we, we know Australian governments tend to be quite cowardly as they move into their second and third terms and in the second and third years of any one particular term. So it's it's the, the, the situation that we find ourselves in now is, is very disappointing. Bearing in mind, however, that uh, the government can now borrow as much money as it thinks it can get away with and as much money as the markets will lend it. And I think uh, the markets will be willing to lend us a lot of money. Um, now, there's a big difference between what the markets will be willing to lend us and what we should be taking on. Um, I'm not at all a fan of lots of government debt. I think certainly we should live within our means. But I, I suspect we're going to be looking at debt and deficit for some time until we see our friends in Canberra being a little bit more serious about what we can afford to spend money on. So government debt will continue to blow out? Uh, that's my expectation at the moment, yes. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much. Thank you. It's a pretty gloomy outlook. I mean, there. What have we got? A 70, 17 billion hole in the budget. That's right. And where's where's the money coming from? That's right. And uh, as Sinclair says, it's going to mean more and more debt. Because well, you know, they they now sort of basically have an, a no ceilings borrowing limit. Well, yes, uh, you can kiss goodbye to any talk of a surplus. Maybe kiss goodbye to the paid parental leave thing, though. Well, let's see how that goes. Okay, and now the news, Leon. Well, Gary, first to overseas and European Union foreign ministers have agreed to speed up wider sanctions against Russia and to examine tough measures, including the defence sector, after the Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 was allegedly downed by pro-Moscow rebels. And that would that list would notably include entities in person, including from the Russian Federation, for providing material or financial support to those responsible for the March annexation of Ukraine's Crimea and destabilising the east of the country, where MH17 came down. And they're going to finalise their preparatory, preparatory work on possible targeted measures and present proposals for taking action. And that includes access to capital markets, defence, dual-use goods and sensitive technology, including the energy sector, which is particularly sensitive for Russia, which has a thriving oil industry. That's right. And it's very important to uh, Germany. Yes, that could have repercussions through the European Union. Now, not much good news coming out of the US either. Uh, now, according to... Zillow, which is, presents a real estate market report, US home values won't match their pre-recession peak of 2007 until 2017. More than a third of Americans have mortgage that lacks enough equity to list their home for sale and buy another. And overall home values, which average about 174200 are 11% lower than their peak level seven years ago. In other words, they're underwater. Uh, look, in Chicago, they're 24% lower than peak, and Zillow doesn't see them returning to their top levels until the first quarter of, wait for it, 2026. And in New York, northern New Jersey area, 
the values are 16% below peak and they peak and they don't see that returning until the second quarter of 2019. What they need is a few um, rich Chinese buy, buying up real estate. Well, yeah, which is which is not surprisingly, though, that is why the International Monetary Fund has revised its growth outlook for the US economy for the second time in two months after a first quarter contraction turned out to be worse than the fund originally forecast, and the IMF cut its growth expectations by 0.3 percentage point to 1.7%. Now, that is quite significant because... Uh, it's uh, it's mid-June forecast. It's already sliced that one percentage point. That's lower than the most pessimistic number issued by the Federal Reserves in June at 1.9%, and far below the central figures predicted by the bank's policymakers. Yeah, not a good, not a good outlook. I mean, a lot of people were saying that America's on the way back and is recovering, but the, the IMF report would uh, tend to offset that. Well, look in Australia. Look, uh, inflation is travelling okay. You know, according to um, the latest figures released by the ABS, um, uh, it, inflation lifted 0.5% in three months to June, bringing the annual rate to 3%. Which is right on the edge of uh, the top limit of the RBA. Which is, which is interesting that the dollar is now at 94.5. And uh, I looked at the futures market and uh, analysts are still predicting a, a rate cut. So let's take a look. There is one interesting point of that, Leon, is that if we are to see a non-mining investment, won't be a boom, but more more investment in non-mining res- activities, a high dollar is very useful for buying new equipment. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, we've got uh, some reports, two new reports showing the nation's most populous state is again flexing its muscles and fast gaining ground on the mining states that have dominated Australia's economic landscape for some years. A Commonwealth Security says the New South Wales economy has momentum in terms of population growth and home building. And Deloitte Access Economics economist Chris Richardson says New South Wales is getting its act together with low interest rates generating better news in retailing and housing construction, as well as better times in their finance sector. And in his latest business outlook, he says WA, Queensland and Northern Territory still have economic growth bragging rights because flagging mining investment is being matched by export phase of the resources boom. But Comsec's quarterly study shows jurisdictions fall into three camps. WA remains Australia's best-performing economy, followed by the Northern Territory and New South Wales, which is yeah, interesting. And the next grouping is Queensland, Victoria and the ACT, and the final group is South Australia and Tasmania. Tasmania particularly is a very sad basket case. That's right. And we now have risks. We now have warnings that we are facing a risk in a share market downturn. That's according to Australia's biggest listed investment fund, the Australian Foundation Investment Company. They uh, invest in many of Australia's biggest companies. They're warning that interest rate rises and political uncertainty could have an impact on investment markets. And at the same time, we have a report from the Melbourne Economic Forum, that's uh, the nation's top economic modellers, warning that Australians are condemned to falling living standards unless we wake up to the need for painful reforms to spur the biggest product activity and surge in more than two decades. And they're saying the end of the resources investment boom and falling terms of trade means even maintaining our current income will require multi-factor productivity growth of 0.5% a year. Now, we haven't seen that since the mid-1990s, Gary. No, that's right. And then, and there's so much, you know, there are bad signs around. I mean, Telstra saying that it's going to axe 960 of its top some of its top jobs. I mean, some of those people will be on 200,000 a year. Those jobs are going off to India. Some of the those people will probably 
find jobs. Others will be sitting on the sideline, but it's a downturn. It's a, it's a negative impact. That's right. That's right. And uh, look, you know, the, the issue too is that, uh, you know, the Melbourne Economic Forum is warning that without a dramatic improvement in the way Australians manage the economy, federal budgets and companies, including a searing period of wage restraint, they're saying unemployment is going to hit 6.6% in a year's time. And that's going to push 250,000 people into joblessness. And it's going to strip 1,200 from per capita income by 2020. And non-mining investment doesn't appear to have taken off. That's right. That's right. Now, back to what we were talking about before, we've got uh, the revised Treasury forecast showing the budget faces a $17 billion setback over the next four years because the Senate opted not to repeal spending measures related to the mining tax. And last week, the Senate backed the Abbott government's plans to repeal the mining tax, but they decided the eight spending measures tied to the policy have to stay in place. And that meant the repeal bid had to return to the House. The coalition voted down because it's keen to get rid of the expenditure. And Sinclair was talking to us about that. He was indeed, yes. So these new estimates reveal it will cost $4.7 billion to keep the school kids bonus, $3.6 billion to keep the low-income superannuation guarantee contribution, and $3.2 billion to reduce the instant asset welfare uh, instant asset write-off threshold over the course of the next four years. You can thank Clive Palmer. That's right. And uh, other billion-dollar-plus spends over the next four years tied to the tax include lost carry-back provisions for small business and income support bonus for welfare recipients and a gradual shift towards a 12% super guarantee. Meanwhile, <laughs> the revenue from the mining tax is coming in at, wait for it, $100 million a year. Not Big much. Bonanza. Not much. Big bonanza. That's right. Still, uh, the latest ANZ Morgan poll found that... Um, Consumers appear to have shaken off their budget cut woes and uh, consumer confidence levels have enjoyed a solid rebound. Uh, consumer confidence rose 4.4% in the past week, according to ANZ Roy Morgan. That comes on the back of the average superannuation fund posting a double-digit return for the second year in a row in 2014. And according to research house Champ West, the median growth fund rose 12.8% in the year. That's the fifth consecutive year following the GFC. Of course, the share market has been doing pretty well. That's right. Now, interesting piece of news about quantum. Gary, they're looking at splitting the domestic and international arms to attract more foreign investment as part of a structural review. And that's a less than a week after the Senate passed changes to the Qantas Sale Act in a compromise deal. The airline is now studying whether it should pursue a similar structure to the rival Virgin Australia. Split the domestic and international. Now, it's due to provide an update on its structural review along its full year results next month. It's looking at options like a part sale of the frequent flyer business or Jetstar. Part sale of Jetstar. Well, uh, you know, Emirates might will be interested in all of that and get some of the um, some of the routes that Qantas has got. Now, interesting, you mentioned about the paid parental leave scheme before, Gary, because the Productivity Commission has issued a challenge to Tony Abbott by saying that some of the funds from his signature proposed paid parental leave scheme should be redirected to childcare. And in, in its Childcare and Early Development Learning Draft Report, it urges changes that would scrap the non-means-tested element of present childcare system, hitting the better off, give more assistance to those on low income, and what it wants to do is it wants to replace current multiple 
multiple subsidies with a single child-based subsidy that's means-tested and activity-tested, and the rate would vary between 90 and 30% of deemed cost of care would be paid directly to the family's choice of approved service up to 100 hours a fortnight. And one of those services, Gary, will be nannies who will have to meet quality standards. Now, the Commission says, and this is where it has a go at the paid parental leave scheme, it says, it is unclear that the proposed changes to the paid parental leave scheme, which is more generous than the existing scheme and that recommended by the Commission in the 2009 report, would bring significant additional benefits to the broader community beyond those occurring under the existing scheme. There may be a case, therefore, diverting some funding from the proposed new scheme to another area of government funding, such as early childhood education and care, where significant family benefits are likely. Look, I mean, if they do that, that would add a further $1.5 billion a year to the federal government assistance, early, early children education and care. Yeah, unless they trim the uh, parental, uh, paid parental leave. Well, anyway, that's it for the week, this week, Gary. And, uh, next week, we have a terrific interview with Gary Keir, all the way from the US, and he's going to be talking to us all about carbon exprint bonds. Anyway, that's it for us for this week. Wish you all the best and have a safe week. If you want to tune into us, you can pick us up on Twitter at TalkingBiz, B-I-Z-Z, or on Facebook. Until then, have a great week.